You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So welcome, Bishy. Um, you're a multi-instrumentalist, a multimedia performer, a producer, a composer, and by definition, of course, a polymath, an individual whose knowledge spans a number of areas. Now, the thing about becoming a polymath is that you need to have been exposed to so many different things in your life, and these are the components that made you. And um, I'm a writer. I'm confronted with the themes of my life through my writing, and these are the things that made me. And I've attempted to unpack them, not only through my writing, but also through therapy. So I'd like to know from you how you have unpacked the themes in your life. Thank you. That's a really incredible and deep question to begin with. So I'm a child of two cultures. Um, my uh, heritage, ultimately, my biological heritage is from South Asia. So both my parents from West Bengal. Um, but I, you know, I, I guess I'm an elder millennial born, born in the first half of the 80s in London. And I've simultaneously felt quite rejected by both parts of that culture. But in my exploration through music, through art, through fashion, clubs, culture, technology, I've really found who I am through like through my exploration of the creative arts and it's really made me who I am today um when I was growing up I, I felt like I was being crucified or I felt like the intersection was closer to a crucifixion and now I feel that that intersection is more like a compass and that I it's my superpower and that I get to travel anywhere with it um I'm also very lucky because I'm from a background where my mother is a, a, a classical contemporary singer. She's an expert in the work of Tagore. And she was very interesting. You know, she emigrated to this country with almost no money. You know, like they wouldn't allow her to bring more than 40 quid into this country. And kind of by chance, she um, wound up being a presenter on BBC World Service. She was a part of the curatorial team that put on the first ever Indian classical festival at the South Bank during during the 70s. So, so before I, I was around, so I had this very culturally rich, but very kind of modest um, start in life. And Tagore is a polymath. He's a playwright, he's a poet, he's a philosopher, he's an architect. I think it was astronomy that he had a, a, a big area of expertise in. And just somebody who was endlessly curious and when I, <clears throat> I guess I subliminally absorbed all of Tagore's uh, influence into my own life. And then growing up in, as a teen in the late 90s, you had people like Bjork, you had Radiohead, you had Nick Cave, you had Massive Attack, you have people like Damon Albarn. You know, these were massively mainstream pop stars then, and they're all world builders. And then, you know, you had people like Missy Elliott and Timberland and, you know, just, you know, Aphex Twin and like all these people who have, who have had huge, a huge impact on my life. And they, their music practice was pulling from this huge world around them. You know, people like Tricky, like, like you know, it just, and that really spoke something for that to be what was the kind of mainstream pop music, you know. So the Spice Girls would have been, 
or, or were marketed to my age group. And like, I still saw Spice World, the movie on Boxing Day because all kids did, but you know, you know, but um, I, I was just aware that I read an article in Smash Hits um, and it was that, you know, Blur and Elastica and Pulp and they were all hanging out at this club called Smashing. Um, and then I saw Pulp on a documentary called No Sleep Till Sheffield and a band called Minty, who was founded by the late Lee Bowery. Um, they were supporting Pulp on tour. And my boyfriend at the time wrote a fan letter and we ended up essentially being discovered by, by Minty. And, and I just knew that there was this world, you know, I'd watched late night TV documentaries about Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground uh, as a child, I stayed up way too late and watched Euro Trash and The Word. I just watched things that kids are really not supposed to, but I knew there was this world of art and mischief and excitement, and I had already decided that I was going to be a part of it. Well, I want to come to Lee Bowery a bit later, this lip-syncing, thirst-quenching, useless man. Yeah, I sort of remember that. And um, you, you don't know this probably, but Lee actually was a co-host on a show that I had on MTV in, in the 80s. And I knew him really well. I got off with him in a nightclub one night in 1982. Oh, wow. And our, our connection went from then. So I was only one of a couple of thousand, obviously. But, you know, nice. I did know him quite well. And he was a really <laughs> interesting guy. So we can talk about him later. Um, I want to talk about um, your parents, you you often talk about your mother, of course, who you've already mentioned, um, but you don't often talk about your father. I just wonder what the relationship was with your father and whether he was in a creative world or he was in his wife's world. <laughs> yeah, um, to be honest, my dad was just working really hard. You know, he, he came a little bit earlier than my mum and was that classic three pounds in the pocket generation. And so, you know, his his way of supporting us all was just to work really hard. And I and he's just generally a more private person. And, you know, the, like there's a whole area of, I think, family life. And also I think of like immigrant life where they don't talk about things. And within South Asian culture, there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of like what you can say and what you can't say. And there's a certain part of me which is very much like what's what's private is is private and and in a sense maybe that relationship to my dad is something that I regard as really private but what I am really comfortable and open about talking about is really understanding the value of the kind of hard work that went on like when your parents have emigrated from another country you you are a part of the struggle you know you are entrenched in their struggle to try and even things out and it's a really specific it's a very specific dynamic that over the years I've talked to different psychologists you know like friends of mine and and, and, and kind of people who are psychotherapists professionally and they're the ones who have taught me that that kind of first generation children of immigrants you know thing it's it's a real thing it's not in my head it it comes with I guess you know trauma is a very big <clears throat> buzzword but it comes with a big emotional weight to it that's very very real and it's been you know often very male very white you know I don't really like to make these distinctions 
but it's it's it it's been it, this kind of education and this kind of empathy towards that dynamic um it's been amazing who's actually taught me taught me that no no you know it, you know like there's one psychotherapist that i know socially and most of his clients are you know children of immigrants he's the one who taught me it's 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 an absolute dynamic it's it's an absolute set of conundrums that you that people like you have to work through and and it's real you know and and i was super that it that that really changed my life it's it's interesting that because we all have a different connection to our, our parents and a different relationship and i've often seen as that i because my father basically ignored me in his life. I got nothing from my father. But I, the reason I ask that is because what I did get from my father is some form of work ethic, because that was the only thing that was important uh, to him. And in a sense, that's what I feel you're saying is what you've actually inherited from your father is, is a work ethic as well. Oh, my God, absolutely. Like, <laughs> like... <laughs> Indian people love working. <laughs> they love working and they love money. <laughs> they lo and they love working. And like a holiday is working. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, let's get on to creativity because I can imagine that your household, you know, with your mother and people that she invited around was, you know, a hotbed of music and creativity. And I just wondered how it felt for you to be around uh, musicians as a young child and growing up? Well, I absolutely loved being around musicians. In fact, I feel that the nicest, the kindest um, and the most supportive people actually were these virtuosic musicians. And what- Why? Why? What What reason? Um, well, I mean, because they were so nice to me. I, I, I think they, firstly, they were very encouraging of my musical, ability and not in a fake way you know I, I knew these people believed in me but obviously they gave me massive amounts of attention which I loved you know they they thought I was really cute and they made me feel very cute and loved and um, I think because a lot of my family was so far away in India it, it I maybe I got some sort of family style love from these musicians but I all could also I also knew that they loved my mum and they believed in my mum's talent and there's something about watching musicians who are that talented be that nice to each other you know that 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 was normal for me and I think there's also with a lot of these musicians there's a lack of entitlement which I find very inspiring for people who have achieved so much in life who are so talented and have this kind of humility to what they do you know um i was listening to a fantastic interview with dame joan bakewell the other day and she was talking about the kind of entitlement culture that has really come through the internet and social media and i loved how she broke it down because she said really it, it all came out of the post-war opportunities for free healthcare. Um, kind of free schooling, kind of cheap housing. She, she she broke it down really well. And she said, but the internet, you know, like like people's values are being changed into people just feeling entitled towards kind of fame and superstardom and, and lots of money uh, without really recognizing um, where true happiness and where true value lies. And I, that was like another light bulb moment that, that, that went off. Like, 
how eloquent it, and how fabulous she is. But, you know, I feel like the happiness of these musicians came in their creativity. And that's such an important thing to learn early on. Your mother was a friend of Ravi Shankar, and uh, who is the greatest sitar player ever, and you studied under a disciple from him. But I'm just wondering, can you remember that moment that you saw a sitar and what, you know, how, how you reacted, what your feeling was? So I was very lucky. I got taken to the Barbican to watch Ravi Shankar, but also Anushka's first ever stage debut, where um so last year Anushka Shankar premiered this stunning record that she's made with the Britain Symphonia and um she put all of her friends on one row so we were really rowdy when it was like when there was space to like cheer she she knew she she knew exactly what row it was but um she she made in her closing speech she said something about um you know I made I made my stage debut at the Barbican when I was, you know, 12, 13. And I shouted out, I was there. And then just, that just got like a massive laugh, you know, because I was like, I was there, you know. So I think it probably first came from there. Um, and it was just such a stunning, it was just such a stunning show. And, you know, Ravi Shankar is so funny. He's so charming. He's so, um, yeah, I mean, he's he's just, he's a star through and through. And there was something about that where I remember being in the back of a car thinking, God, you know, I'd really love to play that. So I initially started in a Saturday school at the Barvin, which is in West Kensington. Um, and um, what was great about, or like, as we'd say, Barvin, what's amazing about this school is that it's, incredibly cost-effective like it wasn't an expensive place to send your children to learn about um in you know the Indian classical arts it's really really reasonable and you know like what wonderfully beautifully shambolic but like absolutely amazing in the service that it's giving and it's it's not just for South Asian people you know there, there were plenty of like European people, there were, you know, like British people, it, you know, it's it, it's it's very open um, to people from all backgrounds. Um, it's just, it's more known in the Indian community. Um, but yeah, yeah, I started going there and then I got the audition with Ravi Shankar's head disciple, Gaurav, wasn't there. And um, that came when I, I got into Central St. Martins and, uh, you know, a couple of other art, art colleges. It all kind of came together and at the same time. And and that was amazing for me. It was really, really meaningful. And 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 I took, <coughs> I mean, I still take, I take, I take the work side of my life incredibly seriously, but I I took it, you know, I take it really seriously. A lot Just of music. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of musicians talk about an instrument as being an extension of themselves. When did the sitar become an extension of you, your personality? Because I presume at the beginning it's slightly different. You know, you're le you're learning, so it, it probably isn't. And I just wondered whether there was a moment where you realised you were so intrinsically connected to this instrument. I think the intrinsic connection was there from the beginning. Um, I had the opportunity to really become a full, full, full virtuoso. 
And there was a whole moment when I was about 21 where, you know, a, a bunch of people came over to try, try to talk to my dad to calm me down for various reasons because they were setting up a sitar degree at Trinity Music College. And I just didn't want to. Like, uh, my work with Minty and, and you know, Matthew Glamour, who... Um, steered Minty after Lee's very sad um, um, demise. Um, he had be he had begun setting up different club projects with me as the focus DJ, you know. So he first took me into a recording studio when I was 15. Um, I He incorporated me into various performance art projects that he was putting together. And then set up various club brands very much with kind of me as the focus DJ. So this other thing was emerging out of me. And I think this probably happens to a lot of young people or it certainly did back then, but there was a real pressure over, you have to pick to be one kind of a person, you, you know, you can't be a DJ and you can't have a sitar degree. You know, you kind of have to pick one or the other. And the kind of independent mindset that I had, it's like, I want to create something which is about incorporating all of this stuff together on my own terms. So I was a little bit too young for the Asian underground, even though many of the people involved in that scene are, are now incredibly good friends of mine. Um, but I, I was being put a lot of pressure on to pick a side. And, and that's a really like, as soon as someone pushes me to do something, I just like go in the other direction. <laughs> it's interesting you say that about, you know, like having to be in a sense pigeonholed yeah. in a way, and this is going to sound a weird connection in a way, sexuality was at that time pigeonholed, you know, for my generation, you know, you came out, you're gay and you, and that's it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's, it's one choice. It's, it's not what we have today. And the other thing is what I remember about being a teenager and, unsure of my sexuality was that I was a really good liar so I'd go into school and I'd lie to my friends and I'd lie to my parents and I'd lie to my teachers about my sexuality and then I'd lead some form of double life what double life did you lead and what did that double life give you yeah again like what an amazing question so I think the terminology for people like me and 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 it sounds like what you're talking about it's called code switching where you you know and there's a certain element of code switching in all of our relationships where we show certain sides of ourselves to different people i mean it you know it was really traumatic i'm not going to lie it, you know you know there were all kinds of things that that kind of happened in my um early teenhood that you know it's 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 a bit too much to go into but I think what Matthew and what Minty showed me was that kind of Warhol-esque art excessiveness, drag kind of gender, gender fuckery expression that I was really, really, really connecting to. And yeah, I mean, it was completely split. So I went to quite a posh girls day school, which was really tough on me because everybody else was so much wealthier. You know, the, the way that the social divisions worked is... You know, the, the poorer you were, the sort of further down the social food chain. Um, and you were really made to feel like you were on the bottom of the social food chain because those, those girls 
come from the backgrounds where they literally just didn't know any better. So I felt very, you know, it, I, I really felt like status wise, I was down on the food chain and, you know, that it, it was very, you know, there were some very challenging things going on at home, um, which are really no fault of anybody's, you know, and so Matthew and Minty gave me this, gave me the wings and gave me the kind of freedom um, to really explore the artist side. And, you know, there's a lot of debate and a lot of conversation around, around at the moment about kind of young people and young people entering into the music industry. And when I talk about my own experiences, I'm like, what you have to understand about like you know firstly we didn't use the word queer then because it, it, it was it was hugely taboo um but that older gay people or like older queens have a, a sixth sense in finding talented young queens they know and they have a beautiful system of pulling people up you know when when they can see talent they pull people up and I was absolutely pulled up and Although on, on whatever cold level, it can be like, you know, a gay man in his 30s and some minors. I think that's a real shame that that's that's the paranoid. That's the paranoia that that people are obsessed about in society right now. I'm like, no, no, I was I was really looked after. And there were some extreme things. There was it was all <laughs> happening. It was all happening around and these and what you'll find is that often very extreme characters are really just have the most beautiful and 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 the most general generous souls and um i was really i was encouraged and i was looked after and i was given these opportunities that just make people's jaw fall fall on the floor you know i now mentor within a more professional capacity sort of younger teenagers and kind of Gen Z artists. And when I talk about the kind of fashion opportunities, the premieres I played at, the, you know, my first proper professional gig job, you know, was in a VIP room and Lou Reed came and Bootsy Collins came <laughs> and he was trying to cajole the, pa the paparazzi. He thought I was so sweet and so cute, like not in a sexual way. He just thought I was so cute. He wanted a picture with me. So on, on some hard drive somewhere, there's a picture of Bootsy Collins and, and sort of baby version of, of, of me. And it's like, that that was the opportunity I, I was given. My first, um, my first experiences in a live recording studio, um, you know, it was Nellie Hooper's right-hand man who was the engineer so so those Bjork records that I was obsessed with growing up I, I, I was I was treated like an artist and I was treated like a grown-up and that has absolutely changed you know that, that that has set me up for life I mean you have said that um getting to where you are today hasn't actually been an easy climb and I think we come back to this idea of um, young and old, and that many people of the queer generation that I'm from um, had a bit of a shit sandwich because of AIDS and everything that uh, happened, and that young people have a very different um, start in life, and you've talked about a sort of perceived division between young and old. Can you first of all tell me what you see that division is in the queer community? Yeah, I think that a lot of the, it has been made up by social media algorithms that are, are keep people fighting because that keeps people on the platform. 
Now, it, it's not me, you know, it, like this has been, there have been several documentaries. There's a, a fantastic book called The People Versus Tech. Um, I always forget that that writer is so amazing, but you know, it, it's very much within like people who have reported and, and exposed, you know, platforms like Facebook, you know, that they've said that algorithms are created so that people keep fighting um, because it keeps them addicted to the platforms. And it, and I think that it's sort of gone into acceleration over the pandemic with TikTok becoming so massive and like TikTok, this sort of social media marketing speak um, of what generation you are. It, it's it's definitely I'm I'm quite fascinated by where the term who, who's who's inventing the terminology and why we are all so obsessed with trying to distill our lives within to this kind of Silicon Valley, Valley marketing speak, you know, just some nerdy guy in a room has made up this kind of language and we're all having to sort of abide by that. And, um, you know, I, I, I make reference to, to at what point, like where I've been born, I guess, because it's thrown up such interesting things more than anything else. Um, but I remain curious and open. But yeah, I, I see a lot of combativeness. And I also think a lot of people um, are not necessarily recognizing the work that has been done since the beginning of gay liberation to get people to the point where, you know, someone like Sam Smith explodes into the mainstream. I, you know, I would I would prefer that people have the confidence and they have the belief and they have you know, they're, they're pop stars for their time. I, I think that's a really beautiful thing, but I do think that there's a there's a bit of a reluctance to really, you know, understand your references. And, and it, 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 it seems to have become very trendy to not understand where you have come from. And that really infuriates me because I'm somebody who's like relentlessly researched who... You know, I, I guess I'm very interested in cultural evolution and musical evolution and how things fit together. Um, so, yeah, that, that's like a pet peeve of mine. But there we go. Well, I like this idea of a shit sandwich. We're saying that an older generation had that. But the younger generation, it doesn't really matter what that shit sandwich is. Yeah. You're going to have one, aren't you? Yeah, 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 and, yeah, 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 absolutely. And also... I don't really feel there can be any real creativity without a shit sandwich. Yeah. And so yeah. that's what connects us in a way. If we, you know, if we want to explore creativity, we're going to have to have some wounds in our life. Yeah. Well, you know, the shadow, you know, I mean, I love Jung and there's a shadow self and there's a shadow part of society and you know, you can't really have light without dark. Um, I was being interviewed in Greenwich yesterday and talking about, you know, that there's been a flurry of historians and, you know, fantastic pieces of literature where we're looking at the darkness of colonial history. Now, so my parents came from Calcutta and they kind of like love empire. Like they love, they, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's so interesting. Like they love the queen that there's so much about the colonial mindset that they love because it's what they identify it in. And so I've had a very sort of wonderfully complex 
view of like you know Calcutta was the seat of the British Empire and so much of Calcutta is so much of what I love about it and what's so interesting is just like totally colonial you know um but people you know I'm a creature of nuance and people have this I have a very nuanced view of that because there were tons of friendships and there were tons of you know for a lot of British people who were in India it was incredibly meaningful you know if you've read the William Dalrymple book, White Moguls, you know, people who, you know, they weren't appropriating the culture. They loved the culture and they did a lot of work to reform and to help people, you know, and I think that, but it's very important that you, in in excavating the past, there is a lot of dark and there is a lot of light. Um, and I'm very into the nuance of exploring all of that. What women musicians did you listen to as a teenager that had an impact on you? So it goes, I think, Courtney Love, PJ Harvey, um, the Riot Girl movement that my sister played for me, um, Bjork, Shirley Manson from Garbage, Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Um, who else? I watched lots of late night punk documentaries, so I was obsessed with Deborah Harry, Polystyrene, um, The Slits made a massive impact on me. What about the um, alternative electronic? What about Laurie Anderson? Laurie Anderson, Meredith Monk, Wendy Carlos. Wendy Carlos, really an interesting character because the first transgender recipient, recipient of a Grammy. Yes, yes, which I definitely shot up on on instagram quickly it's like listen i love kim patris but children remember <laughs> you know this this woman won three of them about... the clockwork orange and the shining and yes. i'm not sure the other but i mean just yeah amazing yeah. pieces of work yeah yeah the the, the well-tempered clavier the all of the sonic preparations for bach um i think the well-tempered clavier too i mean yeah I, uh, sonic seasonings um, Tron, you know, just, just so much. And, and, uh, I've, I've come to learn more and more about Wendy. I've, I, I know, you know, like Gordon Raphael, who produced the strokes were very friendly online. And I know that he had, he had, he had a person, he, he, I think he was somehow involved with maybe servicing her since, like, I don't want to get anything wrong, but he wrote a really beautiful article about this kind of friendship that they formed and, and this musical kind of friendship slash musical relationship that, that, that they formed. And I always knew that those stories were there, but I never really wanted to push because, you know, it feels very sacred, if you know what I mean. When I was a teenager, Bowie was the... the, the figure in 72 I was 13 and Bowie yeah. you know on the scene provided an escape for me from my parents from my family was there a figure that you looked at that provided an escape from where you were as a teenager and it, it sort of pre presented a world you wanted to get into yeah well <clears throat> from a generation perspective that probably was Bjork so Bjork's that run of albums in the late nineties would have coincided as I went through secondary school. Um, but also, you know, I, I did, you know, I, I loved Blair, um, even though the, all that was all very cocky and like very laddie, you know, but I love Damon's musicality and I still do to this day. Um, and 
I think they were really big for me. But the other things that really affected me also is, you know, I look, I remember the Sunday supplements. So looking at the photography of Nick Knight, Alex, you know, the design work of Alexander McQueen, the styling of Isabella Blow, those early Moogler shows are just looking at these representation of these powerful women and just thinking, my God, it is absolutely possible. And then in Soho, the, you know, there would be these cheap discount bookstores. Um, so all these Tashin books, you know, um, there was a film poster shop that had lots of amazing, in Soho, a lot of fantastic posters of Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield and Ronnie Spector and Tara Satana and th th this kind of, I think that reissue culture started in, in the late 90s. So I started to see these representations of quite powerful and compromising women. And that really spoke to me. Um, you know, Missy Elliott was really huge for me. Um, who else has been really like, I I hope I haven't, you know, Stereolab were really like influential for me. Um, you know, Meredith Monk, Laurie Anderson. I, I think I was just like a magpie. I just went to the local library and just tried to devour everything that I could. You know, that I we had dial-up internet, but it what, but you know, we we did, you I wasn't quite interfacing with the internet in that way. But there were all kinds of people who, you know, really, you know, really interfacing in between London and Soho and you know, reading the face and being full of all of this hope. And, you know, many of those people, so many of the people that I grew up um, really respecting and admiring, I've collaborated with, they've written about me, I've recorded on their albums, I've kind of interfaced with them and, and become sort of personally friendly. Um, and there's that, obviously, you know, I was huge, I was obsessed with Yoko Ono. I, I just, there's just something about her that absolutely spoke to me. Um, yeah, I was really but, just being like a cultural magpie, you know? Yeah, we talked a little bit about Lee Bowery earlier um, and how he came into your life through Minty. Did you actually, you you did you meet him and what was your impression at the start? Because I think you're of a slightly younger generation to have known him that well isn't it he died in 94 or yes. new year's eve going into 94 i think yes so sadly i never met lee but i've heard because i was i was too young for it but i've heard so many stories that i feel that i know <laughs> him how can i just ask you though yeah. because he had a way of deconstructing um the body through the shapes that yeah. that he made and that's something that has definitely influence you isn't it that's absolutely I think the idea that the body is a canvas and this idea of freedom and personal style that's being huge you know um I think you know there again it it, it might sound like a massive cliche but there were you know no South Asian no Indian women in magazines you know that the, the everything from the makeup shades to, you know, even like that kind of early dating speak that you learn, which is like, you know, do you like blondes, brunettes or redheads? It's like, well, I'm none of those things. <laughs> do, you know, like, do you know what I mean? That the, the, the very 
the very existence of us. And and, and we still really, it, it's only, we're only really starting to be more visible now, but there was hardly any visibility for, for South Asian women. So looking at Lee and then looking at this kind of retro style, like, you know, yeah, just like I, I loved those, those pictures of Diana Rigg in the Avengers. I mean, I've, I never actually w- watched an episode, but I love Nichelle <laughs> Nichols. Like, these, these kind of vintage retro icons mixed in with this Lee Bowery command of the body. And then looking at these, you know, Moogler and Galliano and Alexander McQueen and just thinking, my God, that there's, there's something within these three polarities that has actually made me, my, my actual command of my femininity comes from there. So do you do you sort of see those people as the ones that have really actively made you think about performance in a sort of wider context? Absolutely, yeah. And you know, you you really got it from Bjork and Skin from Skunkanancy and Shirley Manson from Garbage. I, I actually found on on Instagram that was fantastic that there was one top of the pops um performance of Bjork and Skin from Scott Canancy doing a, doing a cover version of Army of Me. And I posted it on my Instagram to be like, kids, like this, this used to be mainstream. Like this is what, this is what we <laughs> at our tea in front of, you know. And of course there was tons of shit as well, you know. And and I think, I think definitely PJ Harvey in the pink cat suit at Glastonbury. And I, I was really young. I, I was, I was tra- like a, you know, 11 when I saw that. And then my sister, you know, she'd taped whole singing doll parts on top of the pops, you know, and they, they, that, that was, that was like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, what, like, so exciting, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think those moments are incredible in someone's life when you're, when you're growing up and how they have an impact. I remember Sylvester, and I think it was yeah. probably 1976, 77, coming down a staircase on top of the pops. And I was, you know, a teenager Crazy. at home going, wow, you know, this Amazing. is incredible. And they have a massive, massive impact on your life. They have a massive impact. I mean, I, you know, obviously Bowie is huge for me and I've I've collaborated with Tony Visconti on on, on several occasions, which is, he is just amazing. But I can only imagine what it must have been like to see Bowie as a young person. I mean, I'm still uh, obsessed with it now. I'm still just like, oh my God, look at them. Wow. <laughs> you said that um, you're often conceived as weird and this sort of perceived <laughs> conceivement, is that right? The perceived sort of vision of you as being a little bit weird, I think gives you certain freedoms. Do you feel that? And what freedoms does it give you? Absolutely. I think I think also I'm at a stage where I've encountered a certain amount of treatment or I've encountered people responding to me in a certain way. And I've realized that I've had to just work on myself, if you know what I mean. And that the more, you know, and, and actually because I find making music and creating the kind of projects that I've now sort of more and more directing. I find that such a deeply cathartic and therapeutic um, that there's something about conceiving an idea, birthing it, and then putting it out into the world, releasing it, realizing that you have no control over how it's perceived, and then more amazing things happening. You know, I've I've I've, I've understood the full circle of that, and it's so you have to really go within to like 
pull something out, make it, find the financing, find the funding to make a thing happen and then put it on the shelf. You know, it's so deeply cathartic. So, and it's so emotionally and creatively ultimately rewarding to think I can do things. I, you know, I, I can make things happen. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, people like when I was growing up, I was, you know, people would tell me that like oh you look like a man or you look like a lesbian and like now I just think it's really funny but it's horribly wounding at the time because it chimed with my ultimate fear of just being on my own and being alone forever um it was really really bad and 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 it's also you know it it is horrible being teased and 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 being bullied and a combination of like um, being overly sexualized so so just like overly sexually harassed then like being told that like I'm trans or that I look like a man as a way of kind of shaming me then then telling me like oh no you actually just look like a lesbian I mean you know it's like now I'm just totally proud <laughs> now, totally, yeah, just thank you I'm, I'm totally <laughs> pr- I'm you know I'm 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 not the 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 kind of sexual bullying and sexual harassment that I've, I've had to work through in quite a different way but you know so essentially you tell me that I look like a man so what you're trying to say is that you think I'm trans but some of the hottest people I know are trans you know you're going on you're all just like going on about lesbian all of this stuff but it's like when you look at the orgasm gap which is a real thing like you know like women have a very high rate of orgasming with other women so that's all you're really saying <laughs> like just like do you know what I mean and like you and 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 you're you're detecting my strength as a woman and my sort of fluidity as a person and you're trying to shame that and for a long time um, I I believe them. I because the because of where the social discourse was at that point, I internalized it and believed it. And like now I think it's really great. Like I just don't, you know, I think it's a real like badge of honor, <laughs> but it wasn't a badge of honor then. Do you know what I mean? So in relation to your question, you know, you are told certain things, like you know, at like what bullying is, is people go into you and they find your strength and they twist it and shame you for it. And you partake in that because you secretly, it, it, it kind of marries with your own internal fear. And so now those internal fears are really just like being, being released from, from, from where I'm at at the moment I'm kind of like quite proud of all of the awful things that people say or have said in the past and I'm like yeah you know it's fine I don't, I don't really I really mind if you think I, you know and, and it also it's horrible that early bit of the internet you know when you're 20 21 years old and you've got a load of guys being like look at its disgusting man hands look at its disgusting you know you know look at its man's jaw and all of this stuff fucking horrible it's horrible <laughs> to read it's hot it's it's truly like it absolutely broke me but now I think it's like kind of hilarious especially when you know that it's just like a complete tosser on the other you know just some fucking idiot on their laptop or on their phone somewhere 
Yeah, who needs help, basically. I mean, yeah, I think exactly. that's what it's about. I just want to get on to, to uh, because you talked about the theme of your, uh, what was your second album, about, yeah. you know, what it is to be British and talked about the, the image. And you played with the idea hmm. of uh, you as the Queen, yeah. which was inspired by the Jamie Reed uh, Sex Pistol um, image. Um I don't know if you've seen the Kevin Heggie film about the new romantics. Which no, is a, I really oh. want to see it. I totally missed it when it was in yeah. London. I'd love to well, see it. Well, it's really interesting because it's it's not about the music, but it's about the, the form of expression that came from punk into the new ro- romantic era. And it very much aligns with what I feel that you're about as well, where, you, you know, you seem to have taken certain elements from a certain era and brought them into a into a, a newer era um, but it has a connection to the past are you always aware of connecting to the past to make it the present and the future i think that that's just my particular creative intersection uh you know i love history I love creative histories and and sort of creative evolutions, as I think I I mentioned in a slightly earlier answer. And there's it's it's that melting pot. It goes back to that desire of you know I can't just be a virtuosic guitar player. I also grew up you know in you know learning classical piano, and there was a pressure on me to go to the conservatoire and become this classical pianist. You know, I I do think that, you know, even though my kind of disco, the disco Lee Barry family did really uplift me, they had their own rules or, you know, you know, they had their own set of strictness over what, what they wanted me to be as well. And I've kind of gone, well, I don't want to be any just one thing, you know, I, I want to, build I want to create a world that has all of those different dialogues and and I've also grown up through it through you know the first generation of teens to have dial-up internet and you know speaking to especially to female musicians in the 90s who were very very successful you know they didn't have the license to just put their opinion like on the internet and you know, like even the fact that I could just make demos, really high end, high quality demos, and just put them up on MySpace, like that 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 hadn't been possible before, and represent myself as, as I wish, and that you know we were the seeds that have birthed the modern influencer as as we know it now, you know, um, and I think it's just a fascination of the creative passage of time. How was it at that time, though? Because this image was something that became part of the Queen's Jubilee in some way, yes. wasn't it? And that, so how was it for you to suddenly have this subversive message at the heart yeah. of of the monarchy? Yeah, sure. Well, so the idea for the Queen image actually came through Matthew. So after our club projects, um, I set up an independent label and he was really for a, a long period of time, he was my creative partner. And so the idea really came through him and I got it because I love Derek Jarman's Jubilee and I also loved the artwork of Yinka Shona Bar. So he would take 19th century tableaus and paintings and then juxtapose it, juxtapose these, these images by 
like you know it's it I think like is it Joshua Reynolds he he would take these kind of 19th century tableaus and then photograph them all with black people in Victorian clothes that were all made up from you know fabrics and cuts from 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 different African countries so I was really interested in in, in this idea of flipping the script and re-examining ideas of power and notions of authority and but it not in a way like I wasn't sticking two fingers up to the establishment which I think makes that image uh, more powerful and then of course you fast forward 10 years later and you've got the whole debacle with Meghan Markle you know Oh, that rhymed. <laughs> that wasn't intentional. Um, and then, and then, you know, Bridgerton with a a colorblind casting is this huge hit on Netflix. And you know, I'm not trying to say I was there first because there were people working within that medium, but people were having people were having cultural dialogues that now just are completely mainstream. And so it's it's been fascinating to make work through that bridge of time. How ignored do you feel you have been in the music industry, in the modern music industry as a person of colour? And how ignored do you feel persons of colour are today? Well, you know, I think that at that time there was a kind of structural racism that was really served like a cold dish. And people, you know, the, 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 the story that got projected onto me is you should have been massive. You could have been a massive as Lady Gaga, blah, 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 blah. And I internalized that for really, I, I had such shame around that, you know, because I was really positioned to be this mainstream artist. I, you know, opened up for people like Florence and the Machine and Amy Winehouse. And is it, you know, I supported Roisin Murphy on an arena tour, like, we just can't understand why you're not massive. And, you know, I, I had really horrible and discriminatory things happen to me. But, you know, really, by because I understood the internet and understood social media and because of my work ethic and choosing to be prolific, something else has, has emerged in which I'm so much happier in. So, you know, when I talk about, you know, minority and kind of minority rights there again it's very nuanced because I've effectively just built my table and out of that I have this richness and this depth of musical collaborators musical projects you know I'm moving into the world of film and video game soundtracks I'm working with orchestras I'm writing for choirs I'm going into this like you know undefined but really quite kind of deep and sort of serious space and I feel like what life has taught me is that the people who recognize you the people who like you the people who gravitate towards you are just going to find you and, and and there are so many people that I could have only dreamed about crossing paths with or interfacing with or working with on some level that I've formed these really deep friendships with and and that is the reward and I've had some really good friends reframe success, you know, and even, if, you know, I, I was talking through some frustrations and some of my insecurities with a very good friend last week. He's just said to me, look, you're, you're just reframing success wrong. You're doing exactly what you want and you're representing yourself and that is success. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's, 
it's something that you have to continuously work on in a world that is like, you know, 5 million streams here and that artist got 1 million YouTube hits there. And it it, it doesn't, it means even less now because it's not really remunerating people correctly. And it's not really setting people up to have longevity. And, you know, I, I remember I used to live in a bedsit in King's Cross. I remember opening this Bowie vinyl and there was an inlay that showed all of his projects across the, we you know, the, the 20, 25 period year. And I just remember thinking, yeah, that's the ticket. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm, I want to, I want to sit back and I want to make work happen. Um, and some of the things that I'm involved with today, I, I had no idea I was even capable of doing half of it, but I've, um, I've kept open. I, I think I've always had work discipline, which, you know, comes from my background, but I've kept open and I've, you know, walked through some very dark valleys. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because in the in, talking about diversity in the summer, I got a phone call about a regular job that takes place in, in, in the autumn. And the guy that runs this festival said to me, uh, you know, Steve, you're getting on a beer and you're white. And I went, yeah, but I'm gay. And he went, and it's like, oh, he did, I mean, I don't know why he didn't know that, but anyhow. Um, and he said, oh, that's okay then. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This is about ticking boxes and just having a quota and not really um, about real change. Um, so can there be true diversity when it is about only about ticking boxes? Yeah, well, this is you know, that, that's a fantastic question. I've been thinking a lot about that because, you know, especially to like people in their kind of, you know, other brown and black and, and queer people of my generation in their kind of late thirties to early forties, people who were there at the beginning of this social media revolution who still have careers now to sit back and, and, you know, as I've talked about the polarization before, you know, that, that there is this very polarized kind of box ticky language and how do we get beyond that? And it, I think it comes from, you know, very, very deep relationships and, 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 and promoting deep and meaningful relationships. I, I get lots of DMS from, you know, Gen Z musicians, how are you doing this? How are you doing this? How are you doing this? And it's like, look, everything you see or all, all of the relationships around me, these have been long relationships, really long relationships. You know, not, we're, we're here and we work together and we do things because we really believe in each other. And that's, at, you know, you're going to find, you know, broad, broad strokes are really brushed now, like those white people there, those assholes over there, those people from that generation over there, nah, 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 nah. and it's like kind of deepening the problems. And so I see with the kind of wisdom that I've gained um, about having been so active. Like now, I've been I've been a professional musician for the majority of, of, of my life now, and I've seen so many waves and so many ebbs and flows, and you know, really going back to just having deep and meaningful relationships where you really value each other. It just it takes out a lot of a lot of the ego out of things, actually. Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, that's I think that's an amazing point because for me, uh, I think the obsession with letters, you know, LGBTQI plus and everything, the obsession should be about intimacy, about the need of intimacy in whatever relationships 
there are and we need to sort of move on from that to this other deeper level level um to have better relationships whatever they are absolutely yeah. so anyhow i want to get on to your third album let my country awake yeah. now you mentioned Lagore earlier and i just want to <laughs> read the poem to you before i ask you a question where the mind is without fear and the head is held high where knowledge is free where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls where words come out from the depth of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms towards perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever widening thought and action, into that heaven of freedom, my father, let my country awake. What does that poem mean to you? Oh God, it means everything. I mean, it, 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 in a sense, hearing you read it out now, that's like kind of what this interview has been about, right? It's, it's just like within within every and and yeah, it, it's no one has read that um, poem to me quite in the midst of a conversation like this. So I think it's really, I think it's really just like you know, like light hits a prism and it kind of goes off in lots of directions. I think that like that's what it's making me feel. It's like it it's really intrinsic to my core beliefs, you know, in in these like tiny sort of, you know, the, the wars around polarization, the you know, you know, the the obsession over tiny fragment, you know, like like tiny sticks to kind of beat each other with. It is it is sort of um blurring what really needs to be done which is something a bit deeper and 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 maybe on on some level like maybe it is idealistic because you know i i know people who are very combative and very angry and are rightfully so um and they have you know they they are more aggressive in their approach and i think that that is right for for their personality my personality is right for this kind of approach, which is on 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 going into change and going into relationships at a much deeper level, and uh, and that's kind of like significantly like deepening the more that I make work and the more that I sort of create and create and produce stuff. Um, but yeah, that you know you know that poem means everything. It's it's a timeless poem. What, what I love about reading it out to you, and that was my intention, is to um, see how it emotionally touched you, you know, at that moment, coming from a different angle. And that was really beautiful to see. Now, earlier you mentioned um, Yoko Ono, who I'm a massive fan of. And I'm going to twist a question in a, in a way, because when you meet someone like Yoko Ono, I imagine, you know, the usual question is about what you learned from this amazing woman. And I want to know really what you feel Yoko Ono may have learned from you. I have no idea what she's learned from me, but she did thank my mom for giving birth to me. So I was forgiven for a lot of things. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I've got Christmas cards from her. She has sent me flowers when I performed, not boasting. This was really big. This is a big deal for me. What do I think she's she's learned from me? I don't know. Do you know, she doesn't really give much away. 
But what I do know, what I get the impression of is that I've been clocked. <laughs> and, and to be honest, you know, that's all I needed. I never thought I was going to get clocked by Yoko Ono. Um, I, I, have, I have a much deeper friendship and relationship with Sean. Yeah, um, and I think that for Sean, what Sean and I really respond to each other is this, this you know, unquenchable curiosity, people who have grown up uh, at the intersection of different cultures and the pain and the opportunity that that brings up, you know, like that's something that we respond to really deeply. You know, the fact that we're obsessed with music, film, culture, you know, we we always go away from a conversation kind of learning a lot more or just learning about that one other weird thing that the other one didn't know. And I think, I think like, who is he talking about? Is it Hermana Mescal? And I'm, 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 I'm totally mispronouncing this, this, this musician's name, I think, but there was one musician that he, mentioned and I was like oh I don't know who who's that and he loves teasing me he's like oh wait there's a musician that you know that's a record Bishy doesn't know it's like well, I don't know loads of things babe like do you know what I mean so I <clears throat> I think there's that that deep rooted you know another thing about Sean is that there's just this deep rooted commitment to music and culture from such a wide-ranging you know, from, from, from such wide places. And that is something, you know, but both Sean and, and his girlfriend, Charlotte, is, is just this endless well of <laughs> fabulousness, you know. Well, this, I mean, I've been really looking forward to this hour for a while since uh, Archie, who who connected us, um, has uh, yeah had told me about a few weeks ago. And although we didn't really get to the music, what you said at the end about Sean Lennon and... Um, the fact that it is about, um, I think it's also about respecting the fact that your contribution to the culture has enriched it and is immense. And, and I really love the fact that it's not just through your music, which we didn't really get into, but it's through um, a lot of what you've experienced in your life and what I started with, it, with those themes that have made you the person that you are today. So, Bishi, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I loved it. Thank you, Steve. Me too. This has been an absolute pleasure. And we should do more. We could, let's do more. <laughs>